You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season two, episode eight, the Holy Spirit in the art of becoming human. The work of the Holy Spirit is to make us truly and fully human, to recreate our humanity after the image of the perfect humanity of Jesus Christ. Jesus models for us a way of being in which God's activity doesn't negate my own, but empowers my activity. Art making is an inherently spiritual practice. I think we all recognize that there's something transcendent within the creative process, regardless of our background or persuasion it's easily recognizable that creativity calls us out of ourselves and puts us in touch with something greater than our own talent or skill could account for. But the nature of this spiritual component and how the artist interacts with it varies for each of our experience, I would say. Rightly understanding this relationship between the artist and the muse or between the artist and her inspiration shapes how we live and informs the art that we make. For many of us, our work entails a conscious interplay between maker, small m, and the maker. And so understanding our invitation by God to be co-creators is a pretty amazing thing. And I came across a book recently that beautifully unpacks these ideas and lays out a theologically rich yet accessible discussion on the spirituality of art making. The book is called Creator Spirit, The Holy Spirit and the Art of Becoming Human by Stephen Guthrie. And I reached out to Dr. Guthrie and asked him if he would be willing to come on the program and discuss some of the ideas from his book with us here on Makers and Mystics. And so this episode is excerpts from our conversation on the Holy Spirit and the art of becoming human. Well, Steve, I'm super excited to have you on the show. And Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate you yeah. taking the time to talk with me. I've read your book actually several times at this point. And, oh my goodness. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> that, so, might, that might be a few more times than I've read it, actually. <laughs> yeah, maybe so, but... um. It's it's been one of the more inspiring reads that I've come across in a while, and I think that's that's oh, thank why. Thank you so much. Yeah, but I love the title, the subtitle in particularly, "The Holy Spirit and the Art of Becoming Human." Mm. And uh, man, what a compelling title! Why don't you, you, in your own words, just just describe a little bit about the book before we get into some of the details? Yeah, it's actually not the title that I chose, although the subtitle. Is the title that I chose. The title that I chose was Breath and Dust Mm. um, for reasons that I guess were clear to the publisher but aren't to me. Um, The publisher didn't like that title, so we settled on Creator Spirit. But it's really about that meeting that is implied in in my original title, um, where the spirit meets our humanity. Mm. Um, And if you think about the creation story in Genesis 2, where God, um, you know, first you have dust, and then you have a living human being. And what is it that intervenes between dust and living human being that makes dust into a living human being? And it's the breath of God. Mm. And 
uh, some of your listeners, I'm sure, will already know that the same word in Hebrew and in Greek and in Latin that we translate spirit can also be translated breath. So that human-making breath mm-hmm. is also what points to the um, the subtitle of the book, mm-hmm. the the art of of becoming human, that um, the work of the Holy Spirit is to make us truly and fully human, mm. uh, to recreate our humanity after the image of the perfect humanity of Jesus Christ. That makes so much sense to me, especially in viewing the work of the Holy Spirit as being the restorative part of God bringing us back to the original design of what he had in mind. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I look at the creation narrative in Genesis, our first introduction to God is that he's a creator. And then when he creates humanity in his image, of course, creativity is one of the most direct ways that we can understand what his image within us means. Absolutely. You know, and... Of course, when he and when God invites Adam to name the animals, we see this creative part of our nature begin to play out in the human experience. Yeah. And so it only makes sense to me that the work of the Holy Spirit is in some way restoring that creative part of our humanity to its original purpose. Mm. I don't know. What what would you say to that? So one thing that's true about artistry is that it is uniquely human. Mm-hmm. That is to say, you know, there are birds sing, but only humans compose symphonies or uh, make mosaics or write opera or whatever. So it's uniquely human. It's also kind of paradigmatically human. It's It's one of the things that is true of every culture of uh, every people group. We don't know of any people that don't have stories or songs. So yeah, I think um, creativity and artistry is pretty deeply connected to who we are as human beings. Mm. There's, um, you know, I don't know, there's a a careful line to be walked there. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, what I, I, I don't want to say, I don't want to say that Art is like the royal highway to God, you know, or like a, mm-hmm. um, a a shortcut to reach heaven. And that all, you know, if if we could just get everybody together and listen to a Bach chorale, <laughs> then you know, the, the, then the kingdom would come. Um, right. So, something like that. But I I do want to say, well, here is this element of our humanity, you know, that human beings create. Is there a way of making sense of that within the framework of Christian theology? Mm-hmm. And and what I want to say is, yeah, absolutely. If if the world is as Scripture describes it, then we should expect that human beings would be creators. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing in, in particular, and you already mentioned Adam naming the animals, what we see throughout the biblical narrative is both that God speaks and God acts— and I mean, this this is incredibly simple but and basic, but God speaks and acts, and then God invites humanity to speak and mm. act, to contribute something to the world. Yeah. And again, that seems incredibly basic, but not every understanding of the Spirit's activity would acknowledge that. Mm. So Plato, mm-hmm. um, for instance, also suggests, uh, or at least one of his dialogues suggests, that 
artistry arises from the activity of a spirit, you know, mm-hmm. the, the muse. Mm-hmm. But Plato's account is the muse comes and takes away our voice yeah. so that the muse can speak, so that for the divine spirit to speak, the human has to be silent. Mm. And sadly, I, I think that that's also the kind of spirituality that a lot of Christians have. Right. They think for God to speak, I have to be, the God's goal is to eliminate all the me of me. Yeah. So there's there's a different kind of vision of the spirit and spirit's relation to humanity that we find in scripture. Yeah. God speaks, God acts, and then God invites us to speak. God invites us to act. That's good. Yeah. That's really good. And again, well, I'm grateful for the church I grew up in, but somewhere along the way, I got the idea that what God wanted to do was eliminate all the me of me and replace all the me of me just with Jesus. Mm. Now, there's an echo of that that's true, but what do we see when a human being is completely responsive to God's spirit? And where does that happen? Well, that that happens in Jesus. And what we want to say about Jesus is that Jesus is fully God and fully, truly human. Jesus isn't just human. He's the most human. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's the complete human. Paul calls him the eschatos Adam, Mm. the complete human. Wow. Jesus models for us a way of being in which... God's activity doesn't negate my own, but empowers my activity. Mm. Um, That's so good. Where God's presence doesn't demand my absence. And of course, I, then I'd want to point that back to the Trinity. And so that's, that's, that's rooted in God's own being. Mm-hmm. For the Father to be the Father doesn't mean that the Son has to be absent or that the Spirit has to be absent, but Father, Son, and Spirit have their life fully in and through one another. Wow. It's a pretty significant difference of approach between yeah. some of these ideas. I know you wrote about this a little bit more in a section on one of Plato's dialogues, talking about that difference between the passive poet who's just receiving this external revelation put upon him as opposed to the Christian experience. I would, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about that dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty amazing the difference between these ideas of how we interact with the Spirit of God. Yeah, again, it's really striking when you think about it. I mean, so in so there's this dialogue by Plato called Ion, where Socrates is interviewing this poet slash performer named Ion. And they talk about how is it that poets recite their poetry? How is it that poets write their poetry? And basically, the conclusion they come to is that the divine muse takes away their voice so that the muse can speak through them. So when when the divine spirit comes upon Ion, he loses his voice. Now, contrast that with Acts chapter 2. Mm. What, happens, <laughs> what happens when the truly divine spirit comes yeah. upon humanity? We don't lose our voices. We're given our voices. And then th- that's, Jesus says, you know, when you're taken before rulers and kings, don't worry about what you'll say because the Holy Spirit will, what? Give yeah. you words to say. And we read actually through those early chapters of Acts over and over again, then Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, stood up and said. Mm-hmm. So when the Spirit is given, 
um, we find our voices. We our voices aren't taken from us. Mm, that's so good. Yeah. So instead of our voices being taken from us, it's actually a gift received from the Holy Spirit. I, I'm, I yeah. keep I keep thinking of that famous quote: "The glory of God is man fully alive." Yeah, um, Irenaeus. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I did want to talk about that I thought would be interesting is the idea of where does inspiration come from? And that sort of piggybacks off of what we were just talking about. But historically, it wasn't uncommon for people to recognize God or some idea of God as being the inspiration for an innovative work, a scientific breakthrough, or you know, a composition or whatever it is. But when we move to our modern age, everything is now rooted within ourselves, you know, as where that source comes from. And if if you cite inspiration as being from God or from the Holy Spirit in the culture at large, that almost seems crazy. But I'm curious to know how you would respond to that. Well, one thing that I talk about in the book is that God is a giver and that God gives to us in order to make us givers. Mm-hmm. Right. So you can just think of that in terms of love, you know, so it says in, in first John, you know, this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and gave his life as an atoning sacrifice yeah. for us. Um, and we ought to love our brothers and sisters. So God loves us, and then we ought to love one another. God gives to make us givers. And I think that is true cosmologically, you know? I think that God gives life to birds and trees and plants and gives being to rocks and stars and um Grass. Did I say grass already? <laughs> Lots of stuff. <laughs> um, not only to give it life, but to enable it to offer further gifts. Uh-huh. So then when I eat a loaf of bread, let's say, you know, there is a sense in which that bread is the gift of the wheat. It, you know, it came from the wheat. And then there's a sense, too, in which it's the gift of God because God created the wheat. And it's not an either or, but not only that, it's also the gift of the baker, Hmm. right? Because, and, and the farmer. Yeah. And each of those persons along the way made a contribution or each, each of those actors, Uh God who created the wheat, who sent the rain and the sun and the farmer and, and, and the baker and the wheat itself, each of those contributes to that gift. So it's not an either or, which is how you usually hear that kind of um, talk of inspiration presented. Um, and again, we, I think typically, and I'll use a couple of technical terms here, but you know, think in terms of a competitive ontology. Uh-huh. That is a competitive way of being, where for me to have more, you have to have less. There are only six pieces of pie. If I have four, you only have two. If you have five, I can only have one. I think part of what we see in God is a non-competitive ontology where um, for God to be present, again, doesn't mean for us to be absent. 
And so I want to say, yeah, the spirit inspired you to write that song and your experiences and the strings of the guitar and the wood and the resonance of the room that each of those have a voice and there's some kind of extraordinary interplay mm-hmm. going on there and you know i acknowledge too there i think there are times when maybe god's voice is more clearly heard or where the spirit's activity is more forceful and direct mm-hmm. but the spirit being active doesn't negate the other voices. Yeah. And again, I think we want to say that even, you know, normally when we talk about inspiration, we're talking or often talking about scripture. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's what, you know, kind of a classic doctrine of inspiration of scripture wants to say is that it is really God's voice. Mm-hmm. And it really is the voice of human authors. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't Paul going into a trance and doing automatic writing Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden talking like uh, an 18th century German theologian or something Mm -hmm. like that. It's Mm -hmm. Paul as a first century Hellenistic Jew. Mm -hmm. And that's what God, that that is how God is working and speaking. It's all of God and it's all of Paul, you know. So... In that light, it paints inspiration as more of a collaborative effort or a co-laboring rather than an either-or situation where it's either inspired by God or it's not. And I was thinking it also dissipates that view you mentioned earlier, which I've been guilty of falling into at times in my own life, where I felt, you know, I've, I've got to disappear so that God may have glory but in this light, rather to see his empowering of us or his gift within us as a co-laboring together with him, that's a whole different paradigm. And I think that co-laboring, I mean, there's, or that, you know, God wanting to make us fully alive, that's not only a feel-good message. There's a, a stern edge to that as well, that, again, God gives to us to make us givers. So there's... A sense in which, you know, the person who says, well, God gave me this song and just kind of stand back and hold my hands up. No, God wants you to be fully engaged, not just because God is concerned about your personal development, but God wants you to be like God, (laughs) a giver, a giver, produce something, add something to this. God invites us to imitate himself in in giving and contributing and adding to. And I think that's that's yet another place where the artistic and the spiritual parallel each other. And I don't know if you've, um, if you're familiar with a book by an author, Lewis Hyde. Yeah. The gift, the gift. And, and yeah. he talked about the generous nature of the artistic experience yeah. and a lot of other things. It's a pretty intense book, but when I see, or I think about God as a generous creative yeah. spirit, you know, and, and then I look, yeah. I look at, the artistic process or the creative process in my own life, a lot of times, whether it's a song or a poem or something that I write, mm-hmm. it never feels complete until I've given it. it you know, yeah, it's it, that's that, right. That process is never done until I have communicated, I've given it away to somebody else. And so I think it's very yeah. reflective of the nature of God yeah. in that. Absolutely. Yeah, as as an act of love, offering this to others, not not just spreading my brand, right. but you know that. But yeah. out of what God has given to me, I want to give to others. I just you know, last night at uh, dinner 
with my kids, we were uh, devotional. We were reading through. We read the parable of the talents. Mm. So God says, "Here, I gave you these ten talents. I gave you these five talents. I gave you this one talent. What did you do with it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. have have you generated more? Yeah. And that's not because you know. So when God asks us to generate more, it's not because you know God is short on cash and needs extra investments. God yeah. is inviting us." to, like himself, be a giver. Yeah. You know, what's interesting in that parable I just thought of is why the man with the one talent said that he didn't give it away. He said, I knew you to be a hard man. It's like there was this fear element there of what the nature of God was like. Yeah. So God just gave to him and he says, now I'm afraid that you're really a taker. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not going to give either. Yeah. Wow. Well, and to recognize, yeah, absolutely. So part of it is recognizing that I've been given a uh, a gift that I have to give. The other part is really reflecting on that. You know, what are the gifts that I've been given? Yeah. Um, and again, one danger of too quickly saying God gave me this song is ignoring all the other ways that that song has traveled to you, mm-hmm. all the other gift givers. The songwriters you've heard, the hymn writers you've heard, even the materials of your instrument. And so, you know, God doesn't just save us as individuals. He calls us into community. And so one task of the artist is to really explore and come to know and honor the voices of the community. Mm -hmm. Um, What are the gifts you've received from the music you grew up with? Are you hearing and honoring those gifts? Are you aware of yourself as someone who has received gifts, you yeah, know, and yeah. not just I'm this, you know, preternaturally, you know, brilliant human being who creates this stuff ex nihilo? No, yeah. you've received this stuff, you know. Yeah. So study your instrument, study mm-hmm. your influences. Yeah. What, how, how can you honor those voices? That's really good. In the book, you talked about several different art movements and you kind of explained yeah. generally what these guys were after. And, yeah. then, and then you offered the response of the Holy Spirit or you yeah. kind of did a little bit of compare and contrast maybe. or, or, or you, Right, right. Uh, tell me a little bit about that because I, I loved how you, you went through art history and then brought the perspective of the Holy Spirit into an arena that you often don't hear the Holy Spirit spoken into. Yeah. um, There is a way in which the whole book is an answer to uh, a simple question. It's the question, what is so spiritual about the arts? And the thing is, that's that's a very ancient question. Pythagoras Mm -hmm. asks that question more or less. Plato, in some ways, asks that question. People throughout the history of the church have asked that question. So, in a way, the book is a survey mm-hmm. of the different answers that have been given to that question. Yeah. Some people have said, oh, I know why art is spiritual, or I know why art moves us as deeply as it does. It's because of this. So, one way of thinking about the book is each chapter looks at, at a different answer to that question. Mm-hmm. It, and I think in each instance, I hope I'm saying both, yeah, there's an insight here. And I don't know, if we think about this answer in light of the Christian tradition, we might want to tweak or push back against this answer in some ways. Mm -hmm. One of the artists that comes to mind that you discussed in the book 
is Kandinsky, and I only know a little bit about him, but I do know that he held a pretty strong spiritual philosophy behind his work. Kandinsky is a really interesting example. Kandinsky was a Russian artist. He lived from the end of the 19th century into you know the first half of the 20th century, and he's often identified as the the innovator, the founder, the developer of abstract art. Alongside him, I, I talk about a composer named Arnold Schoenberg. Schoenberg lived about the same time and was the guy responsible for the development of what's called atonal music or 12-tone or music or serial music or for lay people, music that doesn't sound good. You know, <laughs> that kind of yeah. yeah. So these are like two of the most influential movements in the world of art of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. What's really interesting is both of these guys had like theological reasons mm. for pursuing the kind of art that they did. Wow. Um, so in Kandinsky's case, he was living in a time that was increasingly materialistic mm -hmm. and he believed in this realm of the spirit and so he wanted to create art that would push people away from the material realm toward the spiritual realm. So I want to paint a picture and not have people look at it and say, oh, look, there's a dog. Or, oh, hey, look, there's a soldier, you know, mm -hmm. saying goodbye to his, his girlfriend. But no, I want people to consider color and shape and the meaning of it. I want them, you know, now there's something right about that. Yeah. Right? It's an idea that he gets from Plato. The idea is that this material world isn't all there is. So we should move beyond this material world to the real realm of the spiritual. Now, what's the Christian response to that? I think what we want to say is you got it half right. <laughs> you know, you're right. The material world, this material world is not all there is. You're right. This material world does pass away. It is perishing. It is temporary and fragile. But what is God's response to the perishing, fragile, ephemeral nature of the material world? It's not to evacuate us out of it. It's his response is resurrection, yeah. right? Yeah. And again, the spirit is profoundly involved there. Um, Paul says in Romans 8, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is in you, then he will also give life to your mortal bodies. Mm -hmm. So the response of God to the fragility of the material world is not let's move away from the material world but let's bring life to it let's yeah. resurrect it let's vivify it yeah so so let's uh, breathe into the dust right mm -hmm. yeah. and make it something that lives that's good we live in a time where the pervading cultural ideas about life and reality about creativity and art about the spirit realm and where inspiration comes from. The culture's ideas on these things may differ significantly in some cases from the Christian perspective. Yeah. And so I think it's important for us to know what we believe and why we believe it. Absolutely. And I think the work that you've done in your book helps to provide a strong foundation for answering some of those questions that we may have, especially concerning art and faith and how these things overlap and interchange, you know, especially the way that you look at various belief systems and practices of artists and philosophers throughout history. And 
I'd love to see more of this type of dialogue within the Christian community so that we as artists of faith can make significant contributions to what, you know, some people would consider a post-Christian society. Yeah, I think I also want to see more of that conversation happen. So one way I tried to do that in the book was to not just interact with theologians and philosophers, although they, they probably get uh, you know, more space than, than other voices at times, but also to listen to Kandinsky and Schoenberg, artists and composers, to listen to Eddie Van Halen, yeah. who I, I quote a, a few times. Um, uh, so to, to listen to what artists are saying, um, and then also hopefully to speak in a voice. I, I tried as best I could to not write the book in academic sort of language. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, my mom and my dad and my sister, who are not any of them theology professors, they all read the book, and yeah. I was pleased that they were able to read yeah. the book, you know? Yeah. Well, um, I, I told my wife this morning, I said, uh, I said, you know, I'm, I'm talking with Steve Guthrie today, and I said, his, his book is theologically deep, but it's also very down-to-earth and accessible. And, mm, and I I'm think, glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Thanks for that. Awesome. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. If you'd like to find out more about Makers and Mystics or the Breath and the Clay Creative Arts Conferences, you can find that information at makersandmystics.com, and you can also find links to my guests and other episodes there. Until the next time, this is Stephen Roach. Go instigate art somewhere. <laughs>